Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. You can connect with us at truthmatterschurch.org. We've spent the last two years in a deep dive study in the book of Revelation, only covering the first five chapters. It's been a tremendous experience with so many truths and challenges we've found. Some of the questions we answered were, does Jesus still not know the day and hour of his return? Who are the seven spirits of God? Are the seven letters to the churches literal or allegorical? What does scripture say about the relationship of God the Father and Christ? Are death and Hades places or angels? And so much more. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Kataroha. So after several months in Daniel, we finally started Revelation. And we spent a few months in Daniel... And we spent a few months in Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, we came across a trove of treasures in the very first opening verses and the first chapter. And here were some of those treasures. And I want to remind us of this because the book of Revelation, as it's promised, or it's, it's promised blessing, For those who read and understand and take heed to the things written in it, this book promises blessings. And I want to remind you and us of some of those blessings. This very book, the book of Revelation, was given by the Father to the Son, and the Son gave it to His angel, or His Father's angel that He has authority over, and then the angel delivered it to John. And John wrote, this very vision and prophecy. And one one of the things we learned is when God is quoted as saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If you were to just do a search of Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation, it was referenced three times. And one of those times at least, possibly even two of those three was uttered by the Father. So one of the truths, or this is to encourage us, not only is our Lord Jesus Christ coming for us to rescue us from this evil and dark age, not only is our Christ going to save us and rescue us and take us to His Father, and when we come back with Him here, that our Father is going to come and dwell with man. Because He is the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. So not only is our Lord coming for us, but eventually the Father will come down and bring the new Jerusalem adorned as a bride for her husband. And then the tabernacle of God will be among men. Right off the bat, I'm getting blessed by saying this. And what we learned when John says he is coming with the clouds, that sounds kind of cool, thematic. But when we read the scriptures and we get to the account of the ascension, when our Lord ascended to heaven and a cloud went to receive him and the disciples gazed into the sky and the angels talked to him saying, why are you gazing into the sky? This same Jesus that you, see, you, know, you saw leaving in the clouds will come in the same way. His ascension, he was taken in clouds back to his father. 
And the time will come when he will come with the clouds. So he is coming with the clouds. Is quite literally, he is coming with the clouds. And he goes on to say, every eye will see him. Sounds fancy too. Well, every eye will see him. What does that mean? Does that mean every eye that who was here at that point in time on the earth? Or does it really mean every eye that has eyes will see him? And I'm taken to the mock trial of our Lord when he was arrested and he was taken before the council of the Sanhedrin. And they were looking for people to bear false witness so that they can convict him and have him killed. And the high priest says, I adjourn you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. He says, you said it yourself. He goes, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with power and great glory. He says, you will see Caiaphas and the high priest that year. How are they going to see him coming unless they are brought back to life? so that what our Lord said will come to pass. Is not our Lord the Word of God who became flesh? And if He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with power and great glory. Now there's two interpretations. It could be you generally with the Sanhedrin here at that time, or it can literally be who He was talking to. I'm drawn to who He was talking to. And this aligns when we get to the trumpet judgments and the resurrections. That word will come to pass. This was in the opening chapter. And our Lord declared he was the one who was dead and now is alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Again, that sounds fancy. Wow, Lord, you're just almighty powerful and you have a great authority. Yeah. Yeah. But he says he has the keys, the kleis, over death and Hades. And then later, death and Hades are personified. So my mind goes to, there is an angel over death. And there is an angel over Hades. And we'll, we'll get introduced to an angel who is over the abyss. Apollyon. And our Lord saying, I have the keys, I have authority over those places that these angels are tasked on being over. It's not just a cool way to describe our Lord. It's actually very descriptive of His power and authority given to Him by His Father. And of course, how can we forget also what one of our learnings in the tribulation, that word tribulation has a lot of buzz, a lot of connotations to it. And there's a lot of preaching and theology and schools of thought around the word tribulation or great tribulation. And we surveyed the entire New Testament. And what we learned was that there are tribulations experienced by different groups. And if we're studying a passage and it talks about tribulation or thlipsis or a great tribulation or great thlipsis, we need to consider what tribulation are you talking about? Because a lot of times our mind is thought, oh, there is this seven-year period of a great tribulation, so when we see somehow tribulation, it's, it's all in that seven-year period. That's not always, or that's not necessarily the case. We need to look at it 
in its context and its intended purpose. But I want to make a conjecture here. So not only do I want to remind us of what we learned, but I do want to supplement some of the things. So these are things I would, would have said had we done a podcast. So these are some of the reflections that I want to speak about. You know when Paul says to the Jew first? How many of us just read over that? To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And we're like, yeah, you just kind of read it, move on. But there is some significance to that statement. So in Paul's opening chapter in Romans, in his great proclamation of the gospel, very popular verse, Paul wrote in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's gospel goes on to declare the next chapter, and he's warning his stubborn Jews who have a hardened heart. This is his warning to them. He goes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Here's a truth principle, and we need to get this. Not only is there different tribulations for different groups, Israel experiences a certain tribulation. They are the ones, when it speaks about the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation, Jerusalem's tribulation, that's for them. The church experiences different kinds of tribulation. There's tribulation for just proclaiming the gospel in a dark and evil generation in which even our apostles were and the, the, early, the early church was and they were killed for being faithful. But there's also a tribulation in store for the church just like the Jews if they have a stubborn and unrepentant heart and does not heed to the warning that they will experience a tribulation in which the Lord will come upon them like a thief. And then the world generally, so apart from Israel, apart from the church, the world has tribulation in store for them, leading up to a great global tribulation of cataclysmic proportions. But here's a truth principle. Not only is there different tribulations for these different groups, but there is a timing of such tribulations. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Instead of Greek, because Greek was the, the, the common known language at that time, what's a synonymous word for Greek? Gentiles. You're either a Jew or a Greek back then, or you were a Jew and a Gentile, or a Gentile. So you can say to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. So from Paul's gospel, this is what Paul's gospel declares. The Jews will experience tribulation first. Let me say that again. The Jews will experience tribulation first with respect 
to the tribulation in store at the end times. And then the rest. The Jews will experience also glory, honor, and peace first. And then the rest. With these in mind, I'm going to ask us a question. Because we left off in chapter 6. When we get to the breaking of the seals, and then eventually the, break, uh, the blowing of the trumpets, and then the pouring of the bowls. With this truth principle in mind, which group is implicated first? It's on the header. Jews. Jews first. Paul's gospel declares that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. And that there's going to be experienced this tribulation to every soul of man that does evil. And that would include you if you don't repent and believe in Messiah. This is helpful. Because when we get to the breaking of the seals and all this activity is going on, when it comes to tribulation we can say Jerusalem's tribulation will come first. And when it gets to the blessings, the honor, the peace, the church isn't going to experience it first. It says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews, there's going to be a group that's going to experience glory, honor, and peace first before us. Does anyone want to take a guess? Exactly. See how it's falling? The chips are falling. The 144,000. That's a very special group. That's a very special group. They're part of the Jews that will receive, experience glory and honor and peace first when their Lord and their Messiah comes for them. That's a good summary of chapter 1. When we got to chapters 2 and 3, we get to the seven letters to the seven churches. That took us eight months. Here were the key learnings. I remember when we were setting out on this journey first, and I'm like, wow, when we get to Revelations, already intimidating. And then when you're getting to these letters to these churches, I didn't know how to look at it. I don't know how to dissect this, to ingest this, to understand this, to reflect on this. I had no idea. That's why I'm thankful for those principles that I keep mentioning. I was like, well, just... Follow the principles that get you out of it and put it all in the scriptures and then use history to help paint the picture or give color to the picture. Here's what we learned. The seven letters to the seven churches are seven epistles to these seven churches written by John. So I don't know, that can be a little uh, trivia. Like how many epistles did John write and you might leave out these seven letters to the seven churches. So this could be some trivia. But these are seven epistles to these seven churches. And these epistles, just like the other epistles, are written to that church, that gathering. So when you look at it like, wait, just like when we were to read Ephesians, we know that it was written from Paul to the believers in Ephesus or the church in Ephesus. When we study or read you know, Ephesians, we know that, okay, it's, this is from Paul to Ephesus. And it's directly applicable to them, but within that epistle, if there's truth that is promised to them and to the rest of us, it applies across the board. But we study it in that way. It wasn't written to us. 
It was written to Ephesus. So when we get to the seven letters to the seven churches, look at it that way. But this one's a little unique because there were angels over these churches. And our Lord is the one who is speaking in these letters to these churches where it is relayed by the angel to John and John is strictly just dictating what he heard and what he saw and what he was commanded to write. So there was this dual audience in these seven letters to the seven churches. But within what's, char- what's a similar characteristic across all seven. So this was an assessment from our Lord. He assessed the church and the individual's as part of that fellowship. And he told them the good and the bad. Within every single letter, there is a promise for those who remain faithful. And also within these letters, there are warnings of impending judgments for those who are unfaithful. And one of the things, as we've had some time to decompress and reflect on some of the learnings in this particular series of the seven letters to the seven churches, one of the things that I'm coming to grips with is understanding we're not all going to be rewarded the same. Meaning, if someone like the Apostle Paul, who was used as an instrument of God by Christ to be the Apostle to the rest of us, and he gets his head cut off, and he says, there lies for me, the crown of righteousness that will be given him. He also says that we will also get, but I would also give room that not all of us will be rewarded the same. And somehow, whether we all get crowns, there might be some distinctive crowns for those who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel and for Christ. Meaning, all believers, we're all going to receive the same salvation. We're we're all going to get eternal life. But those who are martyred and face severe tribulation will likely receive a distinctive reward. So one of the learnings is, as we're studying Scripture and we see a promise, don't make every single promise to you just because you're a believer. The general promises as far as the promise given to Abraham and, and the faith, eternal life, salvation, of course. But when it comes to Certain other promises, like for example, there are promises that are going to be experienced. We talked about the 144,000. They're going to experience the, the, the joy, the honor, the peace first. I'm not, we're not going to experience that first. That was reserved for them. So there are certain promises that may not necessarily apply to you and me. And when you keep that in mind, it'll also help lessen the confusion when we're trying to make sense of some of these difficult passages. Another thing we've learned when we've studied these seven letters to the seven churches, they were written as examples of what to follow and not to follow for all churches of all time. So although it was an ancient text written to an ancient church at an ancient time, that they are also examples of what to do and not to do for all churches until the end. And there is this principle that it is similar to, and we're, we're probably familiar with this, when, when Paul makes mention about the Old Testament and the way God dealt with his rebellious people. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, he's saying these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So the things written in the Old Testament and even here in the book of Revelation, even though it's way ancient from us, they're written as examples for us not to crave the evil things that they craved. Because if we did, then we will be dealt with how God dealt with them. And that was harsh, and a lot of time in judgment and in destruction. Uh, And one last point on this. Concerning the seven letters to the seven churches, the best way I can describe it is our Lord loved to teach in parables. In a sense, He was teaching in that way. It was a parable in in that, uh, with one caveat, He's using actual historical churches and figures in his story. But it is communicating a big picture. And that big picture would include the book of Revelation to the end. And I do want to make a conjecture. This is where I'm going to supplement from what we've already learned and we're taught. And again, I want to go to Romans. And we're familiar with this one. When Paul talks about a mystery in Romans 11, and I want to pick it up in verse 25, And Paul writes here, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Here's the mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, speaking of Israel. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, that they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Here's where I want to get at. The seven letters to the seven churches. I'm saying it's consistent with our Lord's teaching style where he's telling you straight up, but you also need to reflect on the rest of Scripture. And it's this. When our Lord came the first time, the Jews were apostate were apostate in that they made a religion that was suitable to them and they elevated the traditions of men and there was even different sects and different denominations, if you will, within Judaism. When our Lord came the first time, the Jews were an apostate state. And because of that, it opened up the door for the gospel to come to the Gentiles. That's the mystery. Partial hardening has happened on them And it turned out for our benefit. But the time will come when that will end and God will rescue them. But here's the converse. When our Lord comes the second time, the church will be apostate. I'm going to say that again. When our Lord is revealed from heaven, at that time, The church generally, just like he found the Jews in an apostate state, having a religion that suited themselves and these different denominations that suited themselves, 
our Lord will come and the church will be apostate. But then, just as Israel's apostate state opened up for the Gentiles, when the church apostate state happens, he's going to open it back up to the Jews. That's what is meant behind a statement, for God has shut up all in disobedience, that he may show mercy on all. Meaning, when you look at these, if you look at these seven letters to the seven churches and you just read it, how does it start to the first letter to the church in Ephesus? He goes, you know, you, you got this going for you. But he also goes on to say, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. So that's prophecy that the church generally is going to leave, beginning with Ephesus. Okay? When you get to the seventh letter to Laodicea, they were lukewarm. He had nothing positive to say. He goes, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's another words for, I'm going to treat you as my enemy. So if you look at the seven letters to the seven churches, you will see this, depart, this departing from the church to the gospel, the true gospel. And then at the end, there will be apostate. And that's why Paul warns, he goes, in the last days, not many will endure sound doctrine, for they will surround themselves teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. So that truth, when you look at the seven letters to the seven churches, it's also prophecy of the church going to eventually be in an apostate state. But this is also by design. But also our Lord warned. He warned, church, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I meant what I said back then, and I mean it even now today. So if there's any in the church, for example, that are doing the things and craving the evil things that they were doing and they don't repent, you think you're going to be treated differently because you go to a church and saying, oh, he died for your sins and you say this one prayer, you write down this date, you're in. So live like a child of the devil and it's all gravy. God understands. He understands. You know, you were not perfect. Uh, where, where was that in these seven letters to these seven churches? Where was that? Where is that teaching? No, it's like, you better stop or else I will come upon you like a thief. That sounds harsh. That's our Lord, not me. That's our Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Meaning, in the churches today, those speaking about Christ, my question is, are they really representing Christ? Or are they telling you what you want to hear? Because at the end, that's what's going to happen. So that was chapters 2 and 3. That took eight months. Then we get to chapters four and five. So after these letters to these seven, these seven letters to these seven churches, we then get acquainted and are taken to the very throne room in heaven. Folks, this particular chapter, you're like, which passage of scripture actually lets us peek through the windows of heaven and see what's going on? These chapters are it. Yes, the Old Testament prophets were taken there and they've given some things, but this one, we got a lot of information. So here's what we, when we like kind of peered through the curtains, if you will, and looked into the very throne room of heaven, this is what John saw when he was taken up. 
He saw one sitting on the throne. He saw 24 thrones around the throne and 24 elders sitting around it. He saw a book sealed with seven seals, a lamb as if slain. He saw four living creatures. He saw a strong angel. He saw seven spirits of God. And last but not least, he saw myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of heaven's angels. And here was the key learnings here. The one who sits on the throne is, and who is seated at his right hand? Christ. The throne in the very throne room of heaven is God the Father. And I do want to say this. In our past learnings or past teachings, I've argued when Jesus was seated at the right hand and I was thinking more of presiding, like he's sitting in these offices that were created by his Father and willed by his Father, which is true. But now that we're following our principles, there's some seat to the right of the throne of the Father. It could potentially be attached to it, but nonetheless, there is a seat and the one sitting on it is the lamb as if slain. And we learn that the father wrote the contents in the book or scroll in his right hand and he sealed it with his heavenly, I call it royal signet ring. I think our Lord, I think father, our father's wearing a ring. There's more. When John was describing what was emanating, well, him who sits on the throne and what was emanating around it, he says, and he was sitting on the throne. He goes, like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And what we learn there is the three stones, precious stones mentioned here, jasper, sardius, and emerald. These are part, or at least three of the stones that were part of the breastplate of judgment that was part of the high priest's attire. I should have put a picture here, but the high priest among his attire, he had a breast piece and he had 12 precious stones which represented the 12 tribes of Israel and it was called the breast piece of judgment. And part of that was so that the promise that his people and the high priest is always close to God's heart. It's a beautiful picture. It's like even though you're a rebellious people, just like we learned in Romans 11, but for the sake of the fathers and for the promise, a partial, a partial heartening is happening now until the Gentiles had their turn, and then I will turn and save you. But here's what I came away with. You can disagree, it's fine. I believe the Father is wearing a breastplate of judgment. And when John was describing what was emanating around the throne, it was these that was on his chest. And that's what he saw. Like jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and it was like emerald in appearance. I don't know what you thought our father looked like or his accessories. If you ask me, I think it's very possible that our father wears jewelry, precious stones on his chest. And that was a picture of the high priest. And the scroll that was written, he wrote the contents. And then he sealed the scroll, however it was back then. And just like 
we see in even past kingdoms, like whether it be the Persian rule, where when the king or ruler would sign an edict into law, he would use his signet ring that along those lines, our Heavenly Father, I think he has a heavenly signet ring because that's how he sealed the book. It's not just, I mean, he could have spoken and it's sealed, sure. But I also would leave it open that maybe he has a, a heavenly signet ring that will maybe be blessed and fortunate enough to kiss. <laughs> and the contents in the book what, is what again? Yeah. Yeah, lamentations, mourning, and woe. And the way I remember it, it's in alphabetical order, L-M-W. Lamentations, mourning, and woe. And then when we see this scene in heaven and John is describing him, they had a situation when an angel pronounced and declared, who is worthy to take the book from the right hand of him who sits on the throne? At first, no one was found worthy. And John wept. This was significant because if no one was found worthy, there's no hope for restoration, not only in the heavenlies, but also for us. And then someone told John, if I remember correctly, it was one of the elders, stop weeping, John. (laughs) He goes, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, he was found worthy. And then the lamb as if slain was seen taking the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And then all of heaven bowed to the son. Because the father says, yes, son, you are worthy to take my my judgments and to carry it out. This is significant because prior to that, there was kind of like, well, who is worthy? You're like, wouldn't you know by now that that's the son? But it had to be proclaimed and confirmed by the Father. And the Father says, yes. Then everyone says, oh yeah, we're good? Okay, let's worship the Son. Because they're the Father's angels and the host of heaven's army are the Father's. It's kind of like they're making sure that the Father okayed it to be triply, eternally sure that this is it so that they don't fall in the same reproach as Satan and the angels that followed them. Pretty cool dramatic scene. Is some of this coming back? We're going to finish our review up to pretty much four and five. But some of our other learnings from these two chapters, and I described it like this. The four living creatures are heaven's choir director, but they have great authority. And the 24 elders, when I said, well, who are they? Where in scripture? Like, where did they come from? They're sitting on 24 thrones around the throne. And you read teachings out there, they're like, oh, it's symbolic of this, symbolic of that. I go, no, it's 24 elders. And one even talked to John. Are you going to tell me it's the church or Israel or both of them combined? I go, no, one of them talked to him and said, stop weeping, John. It's a person. And I said, who could they possibly be? And I'm drawn to this obscure account that Matthew recorded for us after our Lord was buried and rose from the dead. I want to pick it up in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were opened. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I know here we read it. It was just like one sequence. He died. He cried out. He, he committed his spirit. And the veil in the temple was torn in two. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split open. And the tombs were open. And many bodies of the saints have fallen asleep were raised. We might think that this all happened at once. Well, Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. No one's going to be raised from the dead before him. Which means, although this was written pretty much as a straight, you know, a straight narrative, we have to leave room that when this great earthquake happened and the tombs were opened, that it was three days later that people came out after our Lord rose from the dead. And then they went to appear to Jerusalem. But it says many bodies. Would you consider 24 many? That's a lot. So if you ask me, my best deduction is that the 24 elders were as part of that unique resurrection and was taken back with Christ to sit on the 24 thrones that was set up by his father. And who could they possibly be? I mean, they're definitely Old Testament saints. Could it be the prophets? Could David be one of the 24? I think so. If you ask me, I think David is one of the 24 elders. Heaven's board directors, I like that. Could it be Jeremiah? Isaiah? Daniel? That's where my mind's at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's why the Old Testament saints get to sit on that. And then the 12 apostles, including Paul, will be able to sit on the 12 thrones that our Lord will set on earth. So you have the Old Testament represented. You have the New Testament represented. It's pretty cool. And a couple of other points, and we'll definitely end here. We, when John saw a strong angel, and when, when he says there were seven spirits of God before the throne, and you'll hear some crazy interpretations and teachings saying, well, that's the Holy Spirit. It's the complete spirit. It's, it's seven spirits who are seven angels. The seven spirits are seven angels. That's what it, that's what the, that's what it interprets itself. But those seven angels are given distinct and specific tasks. And as we will see, when the seventh seal is broken, seven trumpets were given to seven angels. Could it be the seven mighty angels? And then, of course, John also sees the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And those are the elect angels who did not join the rebellion and will wage war with Christ against Satan and the fallen angels who rebelled and that will all happen and culminate at the great Armageddon. So that takes us, look, we, we did five chapters of review, but that took us over a year. <laughs> but in order for me to even have some level of confidence to proclaim his word and his truth, we needed to do that too, for my sake as well, and for your sake. And we will end it there. And we will pick up our continued review into the excursions and ultimately to chapter six next time. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. As a reminder, all of Pastor Alex's messages are available online for free so you can listen, review, or catch up in our study at your convenience. 
just stop by our website at truthmatterschurch.org. We also encourage you to tune into our studies on Friday nights through our website, again, truthmatterschurch.org, or on Sermon Audio. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.